Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Okay, good afternoon ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the RSA. My name is Julian Astor and I'm the Director of Education here at the RSA. I'd like to welcome our speaker. So the RSA is, I'm sure everyone in this room knows, is an enlightenment organisation and um, founded in the 18th century enlightenment. But dedicated to the mission of building a 21st century enlightenment. And the question in front of us as an organisation is, how do you do that? And we know that the values of reason and evidence and science and humanism are at the heart of that mission. But understanding them requires us to understand ourselves and particularly the question of, well, just how rational are we and are we capable of being? And um, what is a realistic understanding of reason? And that is a question that nobody has thought about harder than our speaker today, who is uh, Jonathan Haidt. Um, Jonathan, as you know, is an acclaimed uh, social psychologist and author. Three books in particular, The Happiness Hypothesis, The Righteous Mind, and most recently, the Coddling of the American Mind, um, which is out not, not for too long now, Jonathan, for just a few weeks. And um, Jonathan has agreed to sign some copies um, for people that would like to buy that at the end. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Jonathan Hyde. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Julie, and thank you to everyone. Uh, this is my third time speaking at the RSA. Uh, it, is a, it is a joy to be here. Uh, as an academic, uh, as a professor, I trace my, my lineage back through the Enlightenment to ancient Greece, and we study this as something far away. This all happened far away, and we study it in America. But no, it's here. Like This is it. This is like where it happened, or a, bi a big part of it. Um, and this is, uh, as I said, my third time speaking at the RSA. And the RSA, I'm such a fan of because you do something here that, is, that we, we try to do as professors and we usually fail, which is make ideas really cool. You are masters <laughs> at making ideas really cool. So the second time I spoke, two years ago, I gave a, a talk on why we're convinced we're... Well, I don't even know what the talk was on, but somebody took a clip out. I didn't even know this was happening. Someone just took a clip out and thought, hmm, this would... This, be good to animate. And they did this brilliant animation uh, illustrating the, the rise of the role of social media and polarization. Uh, and so it's just, you know, it's like they sent it to me like, oh my God, you just did this? This is great. Thank you. Um, and if you look closely at, at the video, what I noticed in preparing for this talk uh, was that line, espresso for the mind. Okay, that's a kind of a cool phrase. But if you dig into it, it just takes you down and down into some really interesting ideas about the history of ideas. <clears throat> so, of course, the RSA makes a big deal out of the fact that it was founded in a coffee shop in Rothmel's Coffee Shop in, in, in 1754. And as, I, uh, as I've spent a, about an hour reading about the history of Enlightenment coffee shops, I learned something very, very interesting. Uh, which is, of course, we all know the role that they, that they played in the history of ideas and the history of this city and of, 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 of uh, England and, and Great Britain. But this simple idea that there, there have always been places where people gathered 
And because water was so uh, dangerous, you'd get sick from drinking water. So the safest thing to drink in England, as in America in, in that century, the safest thing to drink was alcoholic beverages, because that would kill the alcohol. And so when people gathered in public houses, they would drink uh, ale and other alcoholic beverages. And that leads to a certain kind of social life, a certain kind of intellectual life, you might say. <clears throat> and the simple change, the discovery of coffee, the importation of it, the simple change of beverage from alcohol to coffee changed the nature of social interaction. Obviously, if you go from a depressant to a stimulant, you get more interesting conversations, <laughs> depending on what you're interested in, I suppose. <clears throat> and so that's, <clears throat> that's just a really interesting sort of you know, interaction of like biology and intellectual history. Well, we're at a similar turning point now. We are several years into a transition that may be much bigger. And that is, of course, the transition from uh, intellectual life based on face-to-face -face interactions, publishing in journals, in physical build, meeting in physical buildings, to a virtual world in which um, a lot happens online at a very, very different time scale. And so this is just a, a, some screen grabs from the Grievance Studies hoax, a very fun and interesting event that happened in the United States uh, a month or two ago when some professors wrote fake uh, journal articles that were as nonsensical as they could make them, but they, they indicated that they hated the right things to hate, and so several of them were accepted into journals to be published. Um, all sorts of things become possible when things move online and the debate around that. Um, so I'm, it's a very interesting time to be thinking about intellectual life and what a 21st century enlightenment would look like. That's the big question people are asking here at the RSA. And so when I was invited, uh, this is text from the invitation email a few months ago, I was told in November, the RSA will be celebrating the next phase in our history uh, of opening a 21st century uh, enlightenment coffee house, which I just toured. It's wonderful. If you haven't been downstairs to Rothmel's, I urge you to go after this talk. Um, this will be a new space in the RSA's home that reflects our enlightenment heritage, etc. Now, here's the line, though, that concerned me. It's going to look good to you, but I'll explain why it concerns me. We want to create opportunities for people from every background and discipline to join together to exchange ideas and experiences. Sounds wonderful. To debate the big challenges facing us as a society, undergoing rapid change amid a turbulent politics, and to work together toward a more enlightened future. What could be bad about that? Well, I've been studying politics and the influence of politics and political psychology on on society for many years. And what I recognize in this invitation text is this way of looking at the world. This is one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard. Uh, it expresses a sentiment that surely all of you have had at some point. John Lennon's Imagine is a world in which if we could just get rid of the things that divide us, no religions, no nations, no private property, just all of us just living life in peace together, wouldn't that be great? And this is a vision that tends to resonate on the left in particular. Uh, there is a very noble sentiment. There is a truth to it. But I think as it plays out, it tends not to work for reasons that seem unexpected but actually are quite expectable. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I'm going to offer you a metaphor, a metaphor of society. And here it is. This is my metaphor. Um, and uh, so as many of you know, uh, the Titanic was built to be unsinkable, right? And you know that uh, the reason it was thought to be unsinkable was that they built it with these watertight compartments. 
these uh, uh, metal, strong metal barriers between compartments. So even if one or two were to be punctured, even if actually four were to be punctured and to fill with water, there are boundaries, there are barriers. It won't flood, the ship won't sink. Unsinkable. So we can go really fast through the icebergs. It's unsinkable. Well, what happened? Um, as you know, the iceberg created a gash across several of the compartments. Uh, there's a, a lot of debate online as to how many and exactly what happened, uh, so I, I, I don't want to weigh in on exactly what happened, except to say that several compartments were flooded immediately by the iceberg. And then when the, uh, I believe it was the, when the wall between boiler room uh, six and five, when that either collapsed or the water overflowed it, it then got to five compartments and then the ship's fate was sealed. Um, so, the, in other words, had the compartments been truly watertight, it probably would not have sunk. But because they weren't actually watertight, because water could spill over, um, one of the glories of our modern time is when there's uh, anything interesting, somebody has thought about it and made a video about it. So here's a guy, a YouTuber named uh, Rojalisten, and he, uh, in his bathtub, he took a plastic model of the Titanic, he created 16 compartments, he put coins in each of the compartments as weight, and then he, as you can see, he put a kind of a gash roughly where the, the gash was in the hull of the Titanic, and he made a video, you can find it online if you, if you just Google that, um, you'll find the video, and here are just a few frames to give you a sense of it. Uh, so you see the water, it's not so clear in this image, but you see the water, as it spills over one compartment, the front goes down further, and then that increases the speed at which water goes to the next compartment, which increases the speed, et cetera. And so it goes like this, and then it goes like this, and like this, and at first the dipping, the dipping is slow, but in the end it's very fast, and before you know it, the, the thing is down. Here's what it looks like with the top on. It goes like that, 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 and then that. So that's my metaphor for you, all right? Let's apply the metaphor to two cases. Here's case one, Facebook. Um, so Facebook's mission uh, in 2004, their mission statement was to give people the power to share and make the world uh, uh, more open and connected. Sounds great. Who could be opposed to that? Uh, in 2017, when they discovered that simply connecting the world can change major American elections and many other things, they updated their mission, similar, but now they say to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. Once again, who could be opposed to that? Um, I've spoken at Facebook a couple times. The people there, I believe, are very idealistic. Um, I think it's a company full of good people. Uh, as we're discovering now, I don't know if you saw the, the New York Times expose from a few days ago, the company itself has engaged in some very bad practices, uh, but the people, I believe, are generally uh, a good people, ethical people, and this was their dream. Um, this was a simple uh, image back in 2010 by a Facebook intern plotting out how Facebook is connecting the world. And of course, it's vastly more connected now than it was in 2010. Um, these are just some images of networks. And what kind of society is a better society? One in which there are people who are disconnected entirely, or one in which everyone's connected indirectly, or one in which everyone's directly connected? What's the best kind of society? And you might think, well, the more connections, the better. But there are a few problems with that, problems that people might not have been sufficiently aware of at first, but it's kind of obvious in retrospect that if 95% of people or 99% of people are really good and you connect everybody, 
you still can get all kinds of terrible things happening. So uh, any kind of system is, is vulnerable to the creation of viruses, uh, whether it's a biological system or a social media system, and trolls. Um, um, there are strategic manipulators, and the net effect can actually be declining social trust rather than increasing. So obviously, uh, at least in, uh, the, what, in the United States, these are images that the, um, the alt-right uh, pioneered or developed ways of using, uh, using the internet for, to provoke people, for fun. It's, it's humorous, but it produces, uh, it, it expresses uh, nasty sentiments. Uh, these, the internet can be used to harass people. This is what I'm most alarmed about. It's not arguments that take place. It's actual threats, intimidation, death threats, rape threats, horrible racist rants. Uh, so you're unleashing all kinds of nastiness when you connect everybody, especially if there's anonymity. Obviously, manipulators, Cambridge Analytica, uh, may have influenced uh, elections uh, using Facebook data. Uh, a study, a very important study done in science by a group at MIT, uh, Deb Roy's lab, found that when they looked at how information spread on Twitter, what they found is that um, uh, false information, especially if it's emotionally evocative, spreads faster than true. And yes, Russian bots forwarded this sort of stuff, but if you take all the Russian bots out, it doesn't actually make a difference. Because essentially, in America, we hate each other so much that we're all Russian bots happily forwarding nasty fake stuff about the other side. Um, the net effect, according to some people, including some of the founders of, of Facebook and other social media companies, is that social media is ripping apart society. That certainly is the way it feels. And so we're beginning to ask questions in the last two years, such as, can liberal democracy even survive social media? The existence of governments and social, uh, social democracies as we know them is not as sure a thing as it was just four years ago. Uh, so, brief lessons from this case. Uh, when you connect people in this way, expect unexpected problems. Networks are complicated, important things, um, but if you knock down all the walls, or if the walls fail, if you connect everybody in this way, you, uh, you, you're going to have some unexpected problems. Um, secondly, a 21st century enlightenment, like anything else about social engineering, is very, very hard to predict. It really could go in ways different than you expect. All right, so that's case one, Facebook and social media more generally. Um, case two, what I've been working on for the last few years is universities. The way to understand a university, and of course these are gigantic, they've become gigantic, complex, multi-billion dollar uh, endeavors in the United States and um, where there are, most of them are private. Or rather, I should say most of the elite ones are private. Most of them total, of course, are public. Um, but uh, a way to think about this is what is the, uh, ta the uh, telos of a university. What, you know, Aristotle analyzed things in many ways. One way was, what is its purpose or function? And so the telos of a knife is to cut. And so if I say, here's a knife, it's a really good knife. Can't cut anything, but it's a really good knife. Like, no, that doesn't make sense because it, it cannot fulfill its telos. And Aristotle would say things, well, what is the telos of a physician? It is to heal. And so if, if I say, well, she's a great doctor. She can't heal anybody, but she's a really great doctor. Like, again, makes no sense. So what's the telos of a university? Well, uh, in the United States, we all have um, this uh, image of our, well, in the academy, we have this image of ourselves, as I said, as being the descendants of Plato's academy. And if you look at this painting, this is Raphael's School of Athens with Plato and Aristotle in the center. If you look at it, there's a lot of activity, but what is it? What are they doing? Are they fighting? No. Are they playing? No. They're engaged in 
argument, disputation, making a case, countering a case. It's a very special kind of human activity. Um, and I think this gives us a clue as to what they're doing, as to what the telos of a university is. They're doing all of this not to achieve victory over Sparta. They're, achieving, they're doing all of this because they're in pursuit of truth. This is what we put on the crest of our top universities, veritas, truth, or lux et veritas at Yale. They double up and say light and truth. So the telos of a university, I believe, is truth, both in research, generating truth, and in education, passing on uh, uh, truth to next uh, future generations. Now, to pursue truth, we need special conditions that don't normally, are not normally found in the natural world. First, you have to create a community of individuals who share this purpose. They come together for a purpose and they agree, this is our purpose, this is the game we're playing, this is what we're up to. Then you need norms of how to do that. And those norms, first and foremost, are when you make a claim, you ground it in evidence. You don't just say, I feel. You make a claim and then you have a footnote or a citation. You must have evidence for your claims. This is our culture in the academy. Furthermore, we have norms of civility and persuasion. You win not by threatening to get someone fired. You win by persuading them or persuading enough of the, of the community that someone else has to come along because it's, it's been widely agreed this is the case and the evidence has been given. It is an absolute, there's an absolute prohibition on violence, intimidation, and while there's not an absolute prohibition on ad hominem arguments, if you resort to that, you lose stature. That's not the way you win. Um, so those are our norms. The third thing we need is viewpoint diversity. If everyone's on the same side, if everyone shares the same politics, the same ideology, the system is not going to work because we all suffer from confirmation bias. We all want to believe certain things. And if everyone around us believes them too, we will make no progress. But if there are people who critique it, even if they're wrong, they force us, as, as John Stuart Mill explained, they force us to be specific and clear about our arguments. They force us to get smarter. So if you give me a community that has these, these three principles, I guarantee you they will make progress. If you give this community a task, a puzzle, a problem about society, I guarantee you they will make progress if they have these three things. Uh, now, what is the telos of an activist? Um, there are many different things that one can do in life. Um, activism is a, is a, is a noble, uh, noble tradition. It's brought about many good things. What is the talos of an activist? This is uh, from, uh, the, from the Observer from last week. Dozens arrested after climate protest blocks five London bridges. Now, there may have been some professors there, but they were not acting in their capacity as professors. This is what activism is. It is for a cause, and its purpose is change. Uh, there's a meme floating around. There's a, a phrase you may have heard. The point is not, to, um, is not merely to understand the world, but to change it, uh, attributed to Karl Marx. What he said is very similar to that. The, the exact quote, it translated in English, is, the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. He's saying the telos, the purpose, what we should all be organized in doing um, as philosophers is to change the world. So what does that look like? If you have a group organized in pursuit of change rather than truth, what do you need? Well, look, you have your community of activists. They have a shared telos. We're going to change the laws on, on, on carbon dioxide or whatever other issue. Um, second, you have shared norms about process. We have come together to apply pressure to an organization or individual. That's, the, that's what activism is. We are applying pressure to get them to enact change. Now, these methods may include shaming, ad hominem attacks, intimidation, obstruction, 
Um, there's often debate as to whether vandalism or violence are permitted. Um, sometimes, the, uh, like in Occupy Wall Street, they were divided on that question. Um, but the goal is to produce change. And what you need socially is unity. If we're divided, we're not going to persuade, we're not going to be forceful. Our goal is to put pressure. We have to be unified, united. Um, now, this, as you can see, is the exact opposite of what we need to do if we are pursuing truth. These two goals are entirely antithetical, entirely incompatible. Okay, so back to our metaphor. I'd like to suggest that you think about civil society as a ship. Civil society is complicated. It has a lot of different compartments, let's say. Um, what are some of these compartments? Well, there are many domains of life, and each has its own set of norms, its own professional ethics, its own characteristics. And I just listed a few here off the top of my head, and I put them in a certain order. So what I did here is I put the legislature and the public square next to each other. Now, obviously, they're different, but they're in constant interaction with each other. A legislature in a democracy is supposed to be responsive to what the people are saying. It's not a, unless it's a direct democracy, it's not like a direct you know, measurement. But that's why we have activism is to put pressure on legislatures and other things. But um, I put them together just because they have different norms, they're different people, but they are very much engaged. And that engagement is often very confrontational and it uses all kinds of tactics, even including intimidation and threats. Good legislators, at least in the United States, an effective legislator is one who can really make some credible threats. Not a violence, but threats that if you vote against me, I'm gonna really harm your career and your concerns. So that's part of politics, we understand that. Um, I put the academy and law next to them because even though they are different, um, as a professor, when I speak to lawyers or judges, I recognize kindred spirits. That is, they make claims always with a footnote. They are engaged. It is a kind of a contest, but it is a very delimited contest. And in an adversarial legal system, which we inherited from you, you have barristers arguing both sides, and the truth comes out. So we're cousins, we're kindred spirits, we have similar sorts of norms. Now, what would happen, though, if the norms of the public square were to flood over, um, if, the, if the compartments were breached and the norms of combat and intimidation spread from the first box into the second, what would happen? Obviously, it would make us much less effective. It would prevent us from achieving our telos. And what would happen if the norms spread from there over to the arts, medicine, accounting, business, sports, religion. What if civil society were to flood with the norms of activism? If everything was about, let's come together to pressure people to do what we want. What would happen? Well, I submit to you that it would look rather like this. And that's, this is kind of what it feels like to be an American these days. Um, especially at a university. So what's been happening since 2015 is there's been a wave of student activism um, that has brought these methods into our intellectual life. So while there has not been much violence, there's only been a few cases of actual physical injuries and attacks, um, but one at Middlebury College when uh, Charles Murray at the stage was trying to speak, not about his controversial book, The Bell Curve from the 90s, but about his book on why America is coming apart um, currently. Uh, he was trying to speak about that book, but the Middlebury students would not let him speak. They shattered him down. The talk was moved to another room, and when he and his faculty interlocutor tried to leave the room and leave the building, they were physically attacked. She was injured, uh, possibly permanent neck damage. Um, uh, at Reed College uh, on the West Coast in, in uh, Portland, Oregon, 
um, there was a protest for a year. That is, protesters came into the classroom to protest a class on Western civilization because it was too white. Um, you need to diversify a course on Western civilization. And so they were going to shut it down if they could. And they protested in the classroom for a year. And of course, the administration wouldn't stand up to them. So it just kept going and going and going. Um, at Columbia University, students storm into a classroom with, uh, you know, to, to harass someone who they think made the wrong decision in a, title, in a, in a sexual discrimination case, et cetera, et cetera. Um, norms of activism are flooding into our high schools. High school students are now subject to social justice training, even in physics classes. Not that this is common, I'm just saying. I mean, the, the social justice training is very, very common at elite high schools now, um, but it's even uh, going into physics and other areas at times. It's not just uh, education, it's the arts. Um, there's a phrase, stay in your lane. There's a concern about cultural appropriation. So the norms of activism from the university are flooding out, spreading into the arts. They're spreading into business very rapidly in the last year, just the last year or two. Um, so we're act, uh, CEOs are pressured to take sides, to say, say what they think about bathroom policy, about all sorts of things. Um, it's flooding into um, areas of commerce. So we've had a number of incidents where people who are known to be involved in politics, such as President Trump's um, press secretary, or spokesmen um, are hounded out of restaurants because the restaurant won't serve them or the customers harass them. They don't want them to uh, have a meal uh, in the same restaurant. Um, uh, Tucker Carlson is a, is a, is a right-wing personality on Fox News. Uh, when he was on the set, the protesters from Antifa uh, uh, went to his house, banged on his door, threatened his, his, his wife was home alone, was very scared. So this sort of thing <clears throat> is, happening <clears throat> is happening increasingly as our culture war heats up. As we increasingly hate each other on the other side, more and more people believe the ends justify the means. It doesn't matter what the norms were for this domain of activity. We must defeat them, harass them, intimidate them. Um, and so this is corrupting the press. It's corrupting everything. The uh, headline, or one of the articles, I should say, in Politico, one of our political magazines a week or two ago, was how everything became the culture war. That's what is happening to us. There was a nice line in that essay it's as if the rowdy cultural slap fight the kids were having in the back seat has moved into the front, threatening to swerve the national car off the road. Okay, that's a great metaphor. I love that metaphor. That really is what it, it sounds like, and it conveys the idea of a vehicle going along and then disaster strikes. I actually think this metaphor is a little better, but it's the same idea. If you breach all the walls, this is what happens. So. This is why I say that a 21st century enlightenment needs walls. Um, if you want to create this special kind of environment, and as I understand it, the academy, I think it comes from a Greek word for a grove of olive trees. They met outside of Athens in a grove of olive trees. They had to separate themselves so that they could have the kind of discussions which could get you killed if you had them in downtown Athens, which of course is more or less what happened to Socrates. Um, so if you want that, uh, or if you want uh, this, then uh, you need to consider that a 21st century enlightenment probably will need these three things. Now, of course, an enlightenment coffee house, a 21st century enlightenment, is not exactly the same as a university, but there's a lot of overlap, and the universities should play a crucial role, I think, I hope, in a 21st century enlightenment. Um, so my closing advice uh, is this. To foster a 21st century enlightenment, be really clear about your purpose. What is the goal here? What are we trying to do? Um, of course, you don't want walls of demography and identity. Of course, this 18th century 
coffee houses were gentlemen's clubs, they were for men, not women. Obviously, a 21st century enlightenment has no tolerance, no patience for such uh, exclusions, but you must uh, have clear walls within which you can nurture certain norms, the norms that you need to achieve or to create the conditions for an effective 21st century enlightenment. You must have leadership, strong leadership, to enforce the norms and to sanction or punish people who violate the norms. You also must have a commitment to viewpoint diversity. Um, you must be constantly vigilant against orthodoxy. This sort of project tends to attract people on the left. Um, also, in America, we call them libertarians. Um, it, it, you have to, um, you're likely to not have a full range of views, and so you have to work extra hard to maintain viewpoint diversity and to avoid the pressures uh, that groups evolving on their own uh, tend to evolve or often evolve towards more extremism, more political orthodoxy. You've got to watch out for that. Now, I just wrote this talk over the last few days um, because of this invitation to think about uh, uh, think about what's going on in terms of the intellectual history that the RSA is such a part of. And so just this morning, as I was finishing it up, I was Googling something, I can't remember what I was looking for, but I came across this, this essay written by a current RSA fellow, Graham Henderson, reimagining the Enlightenment Coffee House, and he had this wonderful line. He wrote, the most praised attribute of the early modern coffee house was its civility. We might therefore conclude that civility and its associated values, the ground rules, so to speak, are essential to the success of the 21st century coffeehouse too. Rudeness and vituperative speech, ignorance or ideological narrowness, prejudice or ill-formed arguments should be either the subject of firm informal censure or should even be actively prohibited in order to foster collegiate dialogue. Um, in other words, the 21st century coffeehouse, he wrote, might benefit from some careful and enlightened curation until the culture is firmly embedded. This was wonderful to read because clearly the people at the RSA understand the risks, um, or at least he as a fellow was proposing this as a risk. My talk can be seen as an explanation of why he is right, of why it is so important to not be too open, too tolerant and permissive. You're trying to do something unnatural here. People aren't generally good at this unless you put them in just the right configuration. It's gonna take a lot of, of work, care, and thought. So while this expresses a noble sentiment and a beautiful sentiment, while this expresses a noble sentiment and a beautiful sentiment, a 21st century enlightenment must be psychologically realistic, and that is why it must have walls. Thank you. Great. There's so much to get stuck into here. I'm going to limit myself to, to one question, Jonathan, because I know the, the audience will be keen to, 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 to get involved. It feels to me like there is a very fine distinction that you're drawing here um, and the potential for quite a big paradox. You're in favour of view, viewpoint diversity and challenge and debate a staunch defender of free speech as a foundational freedom. Um, and yet your talk is about the need for walls, yes. constraints, restrictions, some prohibitions, some censure. Absolutely. And that there's an obvious tension there because a lot of the people that you have been critical of, particularly on campus, you've been critical of, of their safe spaces, their, their echo chambers, their trigger warnings. Well, these two are forms of of putting up walls and laying down rules and so on and so forth. 
Talk to me about how you manage that yes. potential conflict. Yes, no, you're right, that's an apparent conflict tension. Um, but if you, if you keep your eye on the different domains of life and the different purposes that we pursue, so there are many purposes we can pursue at a university. Our central one, I've said, is truth or discovery. But we're also therapeutic communities to some extent. That is, we have large administrative staff working on mental health. Um, we're trying to make money. Uh, we're, you know, we're, we're, uh, there's all sorts of things going on at a university. To the extent that students are acting in their therapeutic capacity and want to create a safe space to talk, that's totally fine. They have a, they have a, the, our, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, guarantees the right of association. But you can't say that the classroom should be a safe space. That is, that is to, to violate, to negate the talos of the classroom. So uh, I'm all in favor of freedom of association. This is what I take it to be, it means to be a liberal in the John Stuart Mill sense, is we want to create the maximum room for people to live the kinds of lives they want. But fine, you do that over there, we're trying to run a university here in which if we bring in therapeutic norms into the classroom, we're dead. We, why even bother coming? Um, so that's, I think it's easy to resolve if you keep your eye on the purpose. Fantastic. I'm going to go to the audience. Who would like to ask a question? If you could keep them fairly brief and hopefully end them with a question mark, that would be great. Um, gentleman in the second row and then the gentleman behind you in the third row. Thank you for that wonderful talk. I'm sitting here wondering, or having a sort of what, so what moment. Surely this, the kind of um, fractiousness we've seen as a result of social media and the rest of it is what, is what um, would be expected from a deliberative democracy where truth is contested. Why should we be surprised about that? Uh, so a deliberative democracy where truth is contested, yes. Um, and there are different kinds of a society that would be more or less effective at contesting that truth. So uh, in some democracies, you contest it by writing angry, nasty um, uh, articles laden with lies in the press. That's what it was in the United States in, in its founding in the, in the 18th and 19th century. The press was full of garbage, and that was a way of contesting the truth. Um, in other countries, uh, you do it by killing the reporters who tell, like in Mexico or other places, you kill them. Um, that's a form of contesting the truth. Um, we have norms, so some norms are better than others. The more you have intimidation, the worse the process is. Now that uh, journalists are exposed to increasing harassment, and quite frankly, now that Donald Trump is casting journalists as the enemies of the people, uh, it's only a matter of time before an American journalist is murdered. That's, uh, um, actually, I'm sorry, it's already happened. It has already happened uh, in Baltimore, I think it was. Um, and it's likely to happen more. So this is what I mean by the flooding of the norms of the, not, well, not just the public square, but actually of, of warfare into journalism. Uh, social media has changed so much, and we don't know what the effects are. It's happening very rapidly. Each year is different from the year before. So I'm, my talk should be taken as a warning that, the, that if this pace of acceleration changes, if this, if this process continues, it could literally be the end of or the death of um, what we take to be unsinkable. I mean, the American democracy was thought to be unsinkable, and now it's not. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, thank you. Is uh, is your call more than or other than uh, strong moderation or curation of process, but weak or zero moderation of content? Um, it certainly is strong moderation of process, zero moderation of the categories of people to be let in. 
So certainly no demographic exclusions. Content, that's a good question. Are there things that we should not even discuss? This comes up a lot on campus. Would you let a Holocaust denier speak? And I think, I think I would say that if you're just talking about like open society, then it's very hard to, you know, yes, you'd want to keep certain things out. But if you have a university and someone comes up and they have, they have new evidence, you know, if they have, so uh, there was a thing called cold fusion. If it, 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 doesn't, it can't work. But if somebody actually had evidence that it worked, of course we'd let them in. If somebody had new evidence from the Nazi archives that we had misunderstood the Holocaust, I mean, if they really were, you know, if they were an accredited historian at a university who had this evidence, I would say, yes, we have to let that in. Now, it's, it's not going to, I can't believe that there'd be evidence saying that the Holocaust didn't happen, just as there's no evidence that the Earth is flat. But I, yes, I would focus on process, not content. Let's go over to this side, if we can. Um, someone four rows back <coughs> on the, uh, near the far wall. It's certainly an interesting hypothesis, and I enjoyed the talk. Um, I do think, though, you have to be mistrustful of metaphors. So, I mean, is there any data to back up your argument? Especially on the social media front, there's lots of different social media platforms, and they all have different rules. So on Facebook, you're only connected to your friends broadly. On Twitter, you can choose who to follow, and you can block and mute other people. So they have different dynamics on those social media platforms that perhaps are the equivalent of walls. All good points. Um, you're right. Metaphors help us see certain things, but then they, of necessity, hide other things. And if you pick the wrong metaphor, you'll get the wrong conclusions. So my talk today should not be taken as the work of a scholar coming to you after 10 years of research saying, here, I've proven this. As I said, I wrote the talk in the last three days. These are the things I'm thinking about based on things I've been studying for a long time. Um, there, uh, so I can't say there's evidence that this is, right now this is a, a kind of a think about it this way. Here's a new way to think. We need multiple stories, we need multiple perspectives, we need multiple metaphors. Uh, there is increasing evidence on the effects of social media on mental health. There's a enormous rise in depression and anxiety, especially among young women. Um, that we document in our book with new data. And I, uh, coming over here, I looked up the stats for the UK, same thing. Uh, your overall suicide rate is going down steadily over decades, but young women are killing themselves at increasing numbers, um, and also putting themselves in the hospital from self-harm, self-cutting. Um, social media, so we are beginning to have evidence that social media causes mental health damage, especially to young women. Uh, uh, we have evidence that uh, falsehoods or emotionally evocative information travels faster uh, and has more effect than calmer uh, information. So there, um, I didn't show a slide from... Um, um, let's see, there, there's, there, there's a, a bunch of research from Jay Van Bavel, my colleague at NYU, Molly Crockett at Yale, um, on how social media activates reward centers. It, it does all sorts of things that lead to a distortion of the kind of truth vetting and truth contesting. So I think pictures are beginning to emerge. You're right, I should have said, clearly if you connect the world, enormous num amount of good is done. The number of people in India, in rural villages in India, who can now take a physics course at a top university, that's fantastic. So I don't want to say that the negatives even outweigh the positives at this moment. But we're beginning to see that the negatives are much bigger than we thought three years ago. The negatives are likely to get bigger and bigger. Um, and there is the possibility that they will be the death of liberal democracy. So I take that pretty seriously as, an, as a possibility. Thank you. La lady on the aisle, please. Um, 
can you talk more about what norms you think would be valuable? Because the norms we've had previously clearly aren't working so well, say, for women. Um, what, what do you mean by that? The norms aren't working well, you for said, women? Uh, <clears throat> oh, no. Okay. Uh, oh, gosh. I don't know where to go now. I mean, I, I, I don't want to open a can of worms. Uh, as a middle-aged woman, I haven't always thought my voice should be heard. I've been given the impression that I shouldn't ask to speak, as an example. Uh, can we stop there? <laughs> but I'm just trying yeah. to say, like, there are norms that haven't worked, mm -hmm. or they haven't worked for, say, women, but they've worked in other ways. Um, I'm being very delicate here. Okay. And um, in your mind, what would some of the norms be that uh, structure conversation, mm -hmm. social media and otherwise, uh, that put us on the right path? Um, so first, on the question of whether the norms haven't worked for women, um, if we look back, if, so I teach at a, at a business school, and uh, I, I have MBA students of various ages. When I talk to women about what it was like to work on Wall Street in the 1970s or 80s, it was horrible. And the harassment was, you know, or the jokes, touching was you know, every day or every week. Um, I survey my students now, uh, and whether, whether they're ethnic minority or female, I ask them how often, working in corporations, how often have you experienced some threat to your dignity, something like that? And the modal answer is, is uh, uh, every couple of years or a couple times a year. Almost nobody says every week or even every month. So corporate America cleaned up its act under threat of lawsuits. Activists brought about this change. My point is there is enormous progress, unbelievable progress in just three or four decades on almost every front. So I certainly agree with you if you say the norms were against you a while ago. As for where they are in 2018, that is at least an open question, and at least the direction of change, I think, is so positive. So I think what we were doing in the late 20th century and early 21st was quite positive on issues of inclusion. We were making enormous progress. Um, and now I find when I get in debates, as I was in, in one last night at IQ Squared, with people who insist that there's no progress, everything is racist and sexist, every institution is structured to keep women down and, 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 and ethnic minorities down, I mean, you know, it might have, that was true a while ago, but it isn't true anymore. So I think attending to inclusion in a way that is not polemical or political, like we're going to fight the enemy, but we have problems, we're going to work on them, and we're making progress. We're going to take measurements. We're going to try to do what works. Uh, in the United States, every time there's a, somebody says or does something racist in a corporate setting, everybody has to go through diversity training. Now, diversity training doesn't do anything. It doesn't actually improve the climate, but people have to do it anyway. Um, I'd like to see us have a much more empirically based approach. We all agree there are problems. We want everyone's voices to be heard. Um, and so let's treat this as, as a social science problem to solve, not as a political battle to defeat our enemies on. We'll come to the gentleman in the front, if we may, and then I will come to you, sir, in the third row. You've given us some excellent advice for structuring the RSA uh, what advice would you give to Facebook to avoid uh, uh, yeah. making things worse? Or if the executives of Facebook wouldn't listen, what advice would you give to the yeah. politicians whose job it is to set the framework within which social media operates? Yeah. First, I have to ask, are these comments going to be online anywhere? Will these, yes. uh, these, th our discussion here will be online. It's filmed and that will be online. This will be online, That's okay. Correct. Yes. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. In that case, I will say very little because, um, because I have friends at Facebook, I've, I've spoken to them in New York and out in Menlo Park. Um, they have uh, people interested in ethics and the ethics of the company. Um, so, 
as I said, I think it's good people who have a fundamental flaw in the business model. In any business, normally, you make a product and I choose to buy it. And if that product harms me, I won't buy it. And if that product harms someone else, then we need the government to step in and say, you can't impose external costs on others. Facebook is entirely different because I have a Facebook account, but I'm not the customer. I don't pay them anything. Their customers are advertisers. And so the fundamental, and then when they became a publicly traded company, now in America, many people have this notion, which is false, but that the executives have a fiduciary duty to the shareholders. It's a very fine point of American law, but many people think that their fiduciary, their top duty is to the shareholders. They, and that's why Facebook, I think, has made some decisions about public relations. It's done some things to protect itself that were deeply unethical, but done to keep share price up, I think. So I think the company has, there are very deep flaws in the business model of Facebook. Um, I think those are less severe for Google, but I'm not an expert in these things. So I think we need to, um, to rethink, the, we need to be much more careful about the business models. We need to recognize that some business models are not of necessity, but very likely to inflict enormous external damage on others who are not party to the, to the business transaction. Uh, I teach business ethics. I think all these companies should have a business ethicist who thinks about these things. Um, and I think that we are going to need severe regulation. Um, I know in Europe you're way ahead of us on this, and I think you're right to do so. Uh, I think America is going to have to do it. I have no faith that we'll be able to do it because our Congress is completely dysfunctional and easily bought by Facebook. Sir. Yes, I've, I've recently gone back to uh, university. I'm attending at uh, UBC. I'm University of British Columbia in Canada. And it's very, very apparent how different, uh, how little diversity there is in the dialogue, especially compared to when I graduated in the 70s. And the administration is very much in the activist mode. There's a steady stream of politically correct messages that come out of the administration. But yeah. my question is, what would, what would stop an administration which, which clearly believes it has religion, to, what would get them to stop doing that yeah. and, and once again allow real, real diversity in the dialogue, because yeah. there is none now. That's right. So to clarify, you mean political diversity, that there's a narrow range of ideologically acceptable views. That's yes. right. That is true at, at, I would say, most elite American universities. Not most. We have 4,500 institutions of higher education in the United States. Most of them are fine. Most of them are not doing this. But the ones you've ever heard of, the top ones, the top 50 or 100 or two or 300, um, I think many or most are just like what you said. Now, what I've found in traveling around and speaking to many of them is that while there are a few that are run by presidents who take this activist view, for them, there's no hope of change until the president leaves. But most presidents are what I would consider to be liberal left. That is, they really believe in free speech. They believe in academic norms, academic freedom. Their hearts are in the right place. I can name several, but I won't because we're being filmed. Um, but for them, there are two massive forces operating on them. One is the activist students who they cannot anger. Um, if they anger them, if they seem in any way to deny their story, they could be accused of all kinds of bigotry. So those activist students have enormous power and they're right there on campus. Um, and the other is the donors, the trustees, and especially the donors. Um, the donors tend to be successful business people. Um, that many, they are right of center, but even those left of center tend to uh, be very strongly in favor of free speech and tend to be very upset by what's going on. So the presidents are caught between these two forces. 
Um, the thing they value above all else, I think, is their ranking of the US News and World Report list of the top 100 colleges. So my, my hope, my strategy, um, is that the few universities that have taken leadership, like the University of Chicago, the leadership there has come out and said, we don't do safe spaces in class. You, you know, we, we argue it out here. That's our heritage. Uh, we're not doing that stuff. Um, their numbers are going up. The percent, when they accept students, those students overwhelmingly now accept them. And so that's boosting their rankings. My hope is that if those universities go up and other universities that are really politically homogeneous go down, um, then I think we'll start to see some change. And is that, is that the theory of change behind the heterodox academy? Is it that you will, you will challenge universities to be completely clear about their telos, truth or social justice, pick, and then let students decide which of those is the, the nobler mm -hmm. cause and wait for the, the market to prove you right? Well, that was, that was my thought in a talk that I gave at Duke University two years ago, which is online. Um, at the time, I was running Heterodox Academy, and that's the way that I was thinking about it back then. I don't run it anymore. Uh, there was a wonderful woman, Deborah Mashik. She was a, a professor at Harvey Mudd College in California. She left that position to run Heterodox Academy, uh, and her strategy is to really focus more on helping administration, helping administrators solve the problems on campus and create a climate in which students can learn to solve that problem that the gentleman here talked about at, at UBC. So Heterox Academy now is really focused on creating an environment of open inquiry and learning on campus. Um, so th that's the strategy there. Um, and I, my talk about market forces, that was just my own personal thinking. Lady on the third row, please. Just wait for the microphone for a moment. Thank you very much. I, I want to thank you first. It was a really wonderful talk. Um, I wanted to ask for a little bit of clarification, perhaps, on the role of activism in society, because you sort of almost vilified it here entirely. And there's a lot of diversity within activism, of course, and, and activism that has changed the world for the better. So it would be interesting to to hear you elaborate a little bit more on that. Thank you. No, great question. Thank you for that opportunity to clarify. Um, so I think you have to look both at uh, the nature of the evils being protested and at the likelihood that the protesters have a helpful solution. So in the 1960s was our biggest wave of activism. The evils there were gigantic. Legal discrimination against people based on their race uh, a war of the Vietnam War that was killing civilians. And, um, so the, the, the evils then were much clearer, much sharper. Uh, the remedy was much clearer. Change the laws, uh, stop the war. Um, secondly, there was, as I understand it, a lot of debate within activist circles back then. Fast forward to today, the evils are much less clear. Um, if the activists are protesting the criminal justice system, I think it's much more clear. And sometimes they do that. But they're mostly focused on our universities, and they're mostly focused at the most progressive anti-racist universities. These things don't happen in the South where you can expect that there will be more racist attitudes. They happen at Middlebury College, at Yale, at UC Berkeley. Um, so it isn't really clear what the protest is. What are they demanding? Um, it's really, really hard to change institutions. If you get a bunch of experts together to study something for five years, and they make recommendations, there's a very good chance that those recommendations will not work or will backfire. It's really hard to change systems. 
So if the changes are done by a group of young people who have not studied the problem, who will shout down anyone who says something different, who almost by design don't read the authors they're protesting, um, there's what's called Alice Drager, who's a, a sort of far-left intellectual historian, writes about transgender issues. So she was protested at Wellesley College because somebody found a tweet online from a fake account, obviously fake, but the students all got up in arms and protested her talk. Um, after this experience, she coined the term falsehood-based activism. There's not any real concern for whether you've got the truth. There's no process for getting better policy. It's, it's social display. It's someone says, hey, look at this, and then other people join in. And if you say, wait a second, you're in grave danger socially. So nobody says, wait a second, it's, you're off to the races. And that's why I see universities all across my country implementing policies that the protesters have demanded, most of which will backfire. There is either zero evidence that they will improve the racial climate, or there's evidence that they will backfire. You want more racial identity centers, more ethnic identity centers? We only have one study on what it does, and that suggests that it makes people feel even more marginalized and hostile. Doesn't matter, we're gonna do it because that's what the protesters are demanding, we can't stand up to them. You want a biased reporting system because you want to be able to report, uh, you know, re report cases of, of insensitive speech? Okay, we'll give it to you. So now there's a, there's a poster in every bathroom at my university um, telling students how to report me if I say something that they find offensive. What effect does that have on the teaching that they're gonna get? What effect does that have on the risk taking that any faculty member will take? I love my university, it's a great and exciting university in many ways, but as it's changing in response to these protests, where it's killing the central purpose, which is open inquiry. I will no longer take chances, I will no longer tell jokes, I will no longer show videos that might offend someone, I just play it straight, I'm much more boring. Is this what they want? Lady, just one seat in here. Hi, um, I also, I was really inspired by The Righteous Mind and it encouraged me to do a lot of work, so thank you. Um, but on this point, I'm, I'm interested in, in what truth is because you've got descriptive truth, which you can say is very much, you know, like true in an objective sense, I suppose yeah. as close to that as you can get, but then you've got normative truths. And you can't deny that a lot of the pursuit that we take of descriptive ideas is as a result of our normal, normative objectives, what we think we should pursue. And my concern is, and, you know, you've, you've addressed the concerns of feminists, of um, all sorts of kind of marginalized groups today. And throughout history, there's always been marginalized groups that have been cast out from society. And I think it would be wrong to think that any system that we adopt as a process is always going to be completely objective and it's going oh, to include correct. everyone. So my concern is, is that there's a conflation of truth being a descriptive and a normative ideal, and you have to separate mm -hmm. out those two things, and that you've kind of done with truth and activism. Mm -hmm. And the second part is, is that if you solidify a process, then that is always going to be totally exclusionary, and that also concerns I'm sorry, me. why would it be exclusionary? Just because we don't know who is exclusionary. We've talked about feminism, we've talked about racism, we've talked about trans rights, but there's also working class people, mm -hmm. there's all sorts of other people who in the future, due to technologies, whether or not that's the gig economy or mm -hmm. robotic we don't know what the future of work is going to look like and they we should always assume through history that there will be some people who are excluded from the process because either they don't have the language or the tools mm -hmm. of the education so that's that's my concern is that by solidifying a process you are automatically going to be exclusionary towards other people and I think that's why activism is required in order to show where those people are excluded, whether or not that's racism or feminism, but it's whatever is gonna happen in the future as well. well if, so if we imagine a 21st century enlightenment, whether it be in a coffee house or at a university, and we imagine that we have some restrictions on process and, what you, and how you conduct yourself, um, we can be quite confident that there will be individuals who will say, hey, here's a community that, that is being denied, denied rights. And others say, oh, 
I never thought of that. So I think what you're saying is at any given time, we, we haven't accounted for everybody, but there's no bar to accounting for everybody. And again, the progress in the last 30 or 40 years is just so head spinning, so rapid, that to lose faith with what we've been doing and to say, well, we haven't achieved perfection yet, some people will not be included at a point. There's, they're going to be, and as long as things are open, they will be. <clears throat> Activism is necessary when a system is set up to stop you and it will not change, um, and sometimes you do have to use force. And that was necessary, certainly in the United States. We have a long tradition of federalism, of each state gets to decide, and that utterly failed to grant black people rights in the, 19, in the era of segregation. We had to use higher force. The federal government had to come in with, with guns, actually, with, with the military. Um, so, uh, and that was driven by activism. So of course, activism has a role in society. Uh, in intellectual life, um, I just don't see that happening. I was told, I've been told twice in the last few weeks that universities were created to keep up white men and to keep out everybody else. And I'm wondering, I mean, yeah, that might have been true a long time ago. Um, but I look around, and in the room, there were so many people of mixed race, so many people um, who were actually, what we're seeing, especially in the United States now, is a lot of scholars who are not white men saying this form of identity politics, of dividing us, is really hurtful. It's bad for us. It's bad for democracy. So I think the system we've created is guilty of many things in the past, but it has made such amazing progress in all the things you care about um, that, again, I say, let's keep going. Just we need, to, we need to avoid being drawn away from our talos and drawn into all activism all the time, which is the danger. We need the social sciences to work well. And it's worth okay, maybe we can talk afterwards. <laughs> it's worth reflecting for us um, as, as RSA staff, RSA fellows, that. We talk about ourselves as being the best of the think tank world, the best of the social change world. So we've actually baked yeah, a double telos into our, um, into our mission. Yeah. So that'll be, that, it'll be tricky. I mean, it, you know, it can be done, mm. but it's going to take a lot of extra yeah. care. Yeah, that's great. Listen, we're, we're out of time. We could go on all afternoon. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming along. I hope you enjoyed it even half as much as I did. And if you could join me in thanking John Height. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.